You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. I want every Sunday to be Easter Sunday here. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't understand on Easter Sunday, we're all going to come together and the room is going to be packed and we're all going to be cheering and we're all going to be all excited. Some of us are going to be jumping up and down, dancing and all that. And then I'm going to be sitting there going, why can't this happen every Sunday? And listen, the reality is Easter is every day when you're a follower of Jesus, you see? We live in the realities of Easter, the risen Christ. This is not just a season where a certain world religion called Christianity celebrates its deal. We're Easter people. We live in the reality, not the religion necessarily, but in the reality of the risen Christ. And this series, we're going to challenge your thoughts on religion, and we're going to distinguish between what religion tells us and what the life and teachings of Jesus show us from the gospel of Mark. So journey with us, all right, and bring some friends to church. Don't wait till Easter Sunday. Bring them next week, man. Because we want them to, to hear the gospel, we want them to get a good word, hopefully a relevant word to their lives. So let me start this out. Um, when we think about religion, religion is a huge, broad category, and it's really difficult to get even one agreed-upon definition of what religion is. There's some broad definitions that, believe it or not, some definitions of religion don't even include God or the concept of God, which is why... In some ways, you can argue that atheism could be considered a religion, right? So there's broad definitions of religion, and then there are narrow definitions of religion, which include the idea of there being a God, a deity, and that that deity is somehow connected to shaping or enforcing our morality as human beings, right? So you have these different perspectives on the actual term religion, but I want to throw this idea out that that no matter what kind of complex definition you might have of religion, that almost all religions share these characteristics, all right? There's, there's always a sacred place, right? A temple, you know, a sacred ground, a holy, hallowed, you know, location, geographic location where worship takes place. And in those sacred places, sacred texts are read or sacred teachings are given by mostly sacred men. I don't know why it's mostly men, but history of the world, right? Um, sacred men are sort of the guardians of these sacred teachings. And depending on how weird you want to get, there's some weird religions out there, right? This can go, this can get really out of hand. But the, the men, these sacred men who teach these sacred texts are influencing these sacred followers which some of them aren't so sacred, all right? Some of them are kind of superstitious. Some of them are kind of scared. And some of them are just flat out scarred and wounded, and they're just following um, because of baggage in their life, whatever, all right? The reality is, this is kind of really, and built around all of that, there's always some sort of like, some form of sacrificial system in the middle of it all. How do you get rid of what we would call sin, 
or what we would call, you know, uh, evil or something that would get rid of the human burden of guilt and shame and all that stuff that's kind of inherent because we all fell. All right, so this is this characteristic of um, most religions that you'll find. In fact, there's some really, really weird ones out there. I was looking this up the other day. There's over 4,200, so it said, religions that are registered in the world. Okay, and aside from like the major religions like Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and Judaism, there's some pretty strange ones. Like this one called the Church of Euthanasia. There's a religion called the Church of Euthanasia. You know what their goal is? Their goal is to get all their followers to rise up against the evil, the evil of exponential population growth. Isn't that crazy? There's this one religion called Iglesia. Okay, I don't know if I get this name right, but apparently he's a really popular guy. Iglesia Maradoniana. Anybody heard of that? He's a soccer player in one of the Latin American countries, and in 1998, his followers created a religion for him. He's got about a million followers around mostly Latin America. He's a soccer player. That's crazy, huh? And then there's a religion, I always thought this existed, I just didn't know it would actually show up, called Jediism. I'm serious, I kid you not. Like, they believe in the force. <laughs> and they pray to the force or whatever they do. It's crazy. But it's a registered religion. It's nuts. Let me tell you something. What I just described to you is, is a template for religion that I'll call the temple model. Okay? It's been known as the temple model. Now, we're not talking about the Jewish temple, but this is a model that's kind of been there that's influenced the way we think about ourselves, about God, about others, about the world, this system. And in Jesus' day, when he comes onto the scene in uh, first century Palestine, the world that he was born and raised in, he's dealing with these things. And when he comes, what Jesus does is he doesn't create an upgrade in the current religion, which is what uh, the early Christians thought it might have been, and this is where all the arguments were in the, in the early church and the struggles of Christianity is not, it's, it's, it's not just a, um, an upgrade to Judaism. Now, Christianity is a whole new thing because Christ came and he introduces us to a whole new covenant, a relationship between God and humanity. And in that covenant, he gives us a new command. Like every temple model, every temple system has and carries with it a bunch of rules and regulations so that you know what's right or wrong to do within that model. Am I right? Like the institution of any kind of religion says there's a whole bunch of lists about what is right and what is wrong. Jesus comes into the, into the mix of it and goes, I've only got one command. And this command is the root command. Like, is the filter through which you will gauge every other command. And the command sounds like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, actually, the new command is love one another. In other words, if you had a difficult time in deciding what to do in a situation... And you looked in all the rule books of that religion to, to find where that situation was so that you could know what you're supposed to do. Jesus says, when you don't know what to do, that new command to love one another is the foundation of a new ethic 
through which you can now make decisions about your life. So when you don't know what to do, you need to ask the question, what does love require me to do? What does love for God require me to do? What does love for others require me to do? And with that new covenant, with that new command, and with that new ethic, Jesus starts a brand new movement. And it's a movement where the power of the Holy Spirit would replace the power of the law, where, the, where, the, where love would replace lawmaking, where self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice, where the institution and the geographical space of the temple would be replaced by our bodies when he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where the quality of our relationship with God would be validated by the quality and integrity of our love for other people. Where you can't say, I love God, and then hate your neighbor. Where the way people know that you love God truly is how you treat other people. And this movement isn't just for a single race or nationality of people. It's for all nations, all tribes, all languages, all cultures, for all time. It's the movement of Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus, he cuts against, his, his actions cuts against the grain of the religious temple authorities or the system of religion in that day. And uh, the, the, uh, the text we're going to read out of comes from Mark chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, open up or turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And when you open up to the gospel of Mark, you open up to a world that was governed by a very re conservative religious group that was ruled by the laws of Judaism. Okay? I mean, they weren't Republican. They were ultra. <laughs> by the way, Jesus is not a Republican. And Jesus is not a Democrat. You cannot box this guy in. Sometimes he'll act like a Republican. Sometimes he'll act like a Democrat. But you can't box him in. Sometimes he'll blow the box completely away. And he'll say, it's not about the party that you serve. It's about people that you love. So, what we're going to see in this passage is that Christ is going to invite somebody unexpectedly to follow him. And here, this particular call is fascinating. And it'll teach us that Christ's call reaches to where we are so that he can move us to where we need to be. Like, God loves you enough to love you and to invite you as you are to come to him. But he also loves you enough to not let you stay there. And we're going to see this in, uh, in this passage. So to set up the context of this, um, Jesus is, um, is gaining popularity. And he has begun to do things that really get on the nerves of the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law of that time. Uh, he's already healed some guy that they dropped in from the roof of a house. His friends, you know, lowered him down. Remember that story? The parallel? And he not only healed the dude, he forgave his sins. And the religious leaders are going, whoa, 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 whoa. Who gave you the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus says, well, let me prove it. And he heals the guy. 
Okay, that's not a very good... No, yeah. we, we don't like this guy already. And then he breaks a bunch of Sabbath laws. Yeah? He, he, um, he lets his disciples eat when they're supposed to be fasting on the Sabbath, right? He, he does a bunch of stuff that just, just irritates and offends the religious authorities. Now, what he's about to do here, even more so. So here's what happens. In uh, Mark chapter 2, it says, Once again, Jesus went outside or went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And then as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, now stop right there. I, I've said this before, I think, to this crowd, but follow that verse. Okay, watch. Levi, follow me. And the very next verse says, what, Levi, follow me. Where, where are we going? All right, Jesus, where are we going? We're going to your house to eat with your friends. So I hope you got, you know, I hope you got them ready. I hope you sent the Facebook message and invite out because I'm coming over, Levi. Follow me and I'm going to where you live. How would that make you feel if Jesus today stood in front of you and said, Dan, follow me. Sang, follow me. And by the way, I'm going to your house at 3 o'clock. You'd be like, oh, you know what? Um, just give me, give me a few hours, Jesus. I need to clean up, need to tidy up, right? <laughs> there's certain rooms we wouldn't want him to go in. Right? We just, you know, there's always that room in the house that we set up. It's just for show. Right? It's, just, it's the one that everyone can see, and it looks nice, and, you know, it's got covers on the furniture and stuff, right? You ever seen that? Some of you. Now, this is the one that's the clean room. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to the house, and, and we're going to invite all your dirty friends. So this is where I'm headed today. He goes, Matthew, it says, when Jesus, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, watch this, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. You could interpret that there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed him. Right? Watch this. When Jesus, or when the, the teachers of the law, the religious authorities, who were Pharisees, saw him eating. Okay, back in those days, you just didn't eat with anybody, okay? It wasn't like today, hey, come out for a meal. It was like there was this, you shared, to share a meal with somebody was like an, an, an invitation to intimacy. It was like, come and share my table, Come and share my home. There's, it meant a lot to be connected with some people that you're eating. This was a, um, it's a big deal. Like, you associate with those people that you eat with. Okay, that's how it was. So they go, why is Jesus associating with sinners, eating with tax collectors? And then they asked his disciples, why does he do this? And then on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, here's what's happening. Jesus is doing something that in the minds of his religious contemporaries is below the, the standard of a Jewish rabbi. What he does is something that a Jewish prestigious, honorable rabbi should not be doing. And Jesus is going, um, you know what? I'm going to do it, because I'm going to show you what, what this is all about. If I was Jesus' image consultant, 
I would say, Jesus, this is really bad for your reputation right now. This is really bad for your image right now. You are rising in popularity. Man, you got like over a million hits on YouTube, Jesus. This is good. We need to not tarnish the reputation by going to those people on the other side of the tracks, by going to those people on that side of town. And I'm about to describe to you who those people were. It says he, it says he ate with tax collectors, Matthew's house, and sinners. A tax collector in those days, how many of you um, like tax season? <laughs> None of us like it when we have to pay taxes. So, but it wasn't like that back then. Back then, a tax collector was, um, they were hired by the Roman government. They were a Jew hired by the Roman government to tax their own people. You know, it was like you're making money off the oppression of your own people. It's really a really disreputable, really dishonorable profession to be in. But man, you made a lot of money as a tax collector because you could put a little bit of extra tax on top and just shave that off and put that in your pocket. So tax collectors were probably really rich people, but they got rich through being disgraceful opportunists. <laughs> tax collector, modern day, would be like your, uh, your neighborhood drug dealer, pimp, pusher, anybody who uses other people to earn money in a bad way. That's a tax collector. They were the bottom of the barrel, and they were rich, but in many people's minds, they were criminally rich, okay? So Matthew and his friends are despised lowlifes, rejects, in the eyes of the religious authorities. That's a tax collector. Now, what about a sinner? Sinner? That was another negative label that was placed on people back then. Uh, you could either be in two categories if you were a sinner, traditionally. It would be you either were a... Um, you either were a criminal that lived a criminal lifestyle, like a robber or a murderer, or back then in that conservative society, if you committed adultery, you were considered a criminal. Or the second category would be you just worked a dishonorable profession, prostitute, tax collector, right? sinner. Now, the Pharisees used the term in general to label anybody who did not prescribe to living up to their brand of religion. They're just a sinner. They live a questionable lifestyle with a questionable reputation because they can't live up to our brand of religion. They don't embrace it. So they're sinners and we're not. Now, in today's world, that label would be given to anybody on the fringes of society. Anyone who maybe didn't show that they cared too much about religious rules and morality. Anyone who uh, made their living off the dark side of humanity, right, who stole, who cheated, um, who manipulated their way through life. We might not use the word sinner. We might use the word sketchy. We might use the word immoral. We might use the word bad influence, stay away from them. We might use the word manipulative con artist. They were sinners. And the religious um, culture of that day said, avoid those people if you want to be close to God. Jesus said, I'm going to dive right into the middle of those people to show them who God really is. So here's what I want you to see. From Jesus' actions, he shows us a few things. He shows us that love makes us a lot holier than law. I can imagine Matthew as the tax collector sitting there at his tax collecting booth. 
I can imagine Matthew not really feeling too good about himself because most people who work in dishonorable professions, they got caught up into it. Or it was kind of what their parents did before them. You know what I'm saying? They, they didn't wake up one day and say, I think I want to just cheat people for a living. This developed over time. So who knows what Matthew's process was, but he's sitting at the tax collecting booth, and I imagine that he knows about Jesus. He knows Jesus' popularity. He's probably watched Jesus walk right past him and pay his taxes. But on this day, he sees Jesus across the way, and Jesus catches his eye, and Jesus goes, yes. And Matthew goes, Jesus goes, yes, you. Okay, what do you want, Jesus? Matt, follow me. Follow me. Inherent in the invitation is leave behind your disreputable occupation and follow me. Now, for Matthew, I don't think he was thinking, man, I'm going to lose so much money, man. I've been making so much money from this. What's going to happen? I think he was thinking, oh. Finally, an alternative life. I hate the life I've been living. I hate the dishonor I've been living in by being a tax collector. I hate it every time people walk past my booth, throw their change in the thing, and cuss me out. Because that's probably what they were doing. Traitor. You know, they were using Christian cuss words, man. You know, all kinds of... Whatever they were doing, they were just despising Matthew. And Matthew's response to Jesus' invitation is one of, I think, relief. Oh, really? Do I get to do that? Yes, Matthew. Matthew, I've got a future for you, and you, don't, you can leave that in your past. Here's the thing. Believe it or not, what Jesus is doing with Matthew is he's inviting him to live a holy life. And let me tell you something I've, I think I know about you and about me, is that you want holiness more than you think. Most of us get turned off by that term because we associate it with either being impossible to attain or being judgmental. You know those holier-than-thou people in your life? You know anybody like that? Holier than thou looking at you from their religious, you know, pedestal going, how come you're not this and that? There's no, I know you don't know people like that. But, um, and if they're next to you, please don't make it, you know, make a scene right now. But, but we shun away, shun away from that term holiness because we misunderstand it. You know what it means to be holy? Literally, it means to be set apart for special use. To be set apart for a special use purpose. Now listen, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want purpose? Because you can have all the riches in the world. You can have all the plans in the world. You can have all the friendships in the world, but if you have a life with no purpose, you see? So holiness is a call. I think in a, is, in a very real sense, it's a call and a pathway to live out your specific purpose. For some of you, that's what you've been missing. I got everything, man. Everything's good right now. So what's it all for? 
What's it all for? I was talking with a relative of mine, and he is, um, he is making his way in the world of academia. Like he's, he's about to get his PhD at Berkeley, Cal Berkeley right now, in, uh, I forgot what the field is. Anyway, but he, he, he was talking to me, and he was telling me all about it, and he's all excited, and I was excited for him, and I said to him, hey, dude, like that's so awesome, man. You're going to be like a, like a PhD for real, like one of the first, I think, ever in our family. Can you believe that's awesome, dude? I go, so like, tell me about the research you've been doing, and he's telling me all about all this research, and that's awesome, wow, cool. Yeah, um, so... So, like what, like, what kinds of things, like, how is the world going to be a better place because of this research? And he's like, uh, you know, outside of the world of academia, I'm not really sure how this is going to make the world a better place. I'm not really sure how this applies to the real world. And I, it was just an awkward moment. And I went... Dude, the Lakers are doing so great right now, man. They're losing on purpose so they can get the next pick. You know, change the topic. But you see, what he's missing is what? Purpose. What's it for? And, and I think what we're doing here is we misunderstand holiness as you got to be like those pastors up there. you got to be like those holy people up there. And no, if you're with Jesus, he makes you holy, right? And holiness is about setting you apart for your specific purpose. And the beginning of discovering what that purpose is, is answering the call to follow him. Matt, there is no purpose, Matthew, in cheating your people out of their money on a day-to-day basis. I've got a purpose for you. Come, follow me. And the place Jesus goes is right to his house. You see, we begin to see the difference between religion and Jesus' life and teachings. Because religion will tell you, holiness is about, you know, obey this code, obey this set of rules and regulations, and the better you can do that, the more holy you are. And if you fail, just try harder. Oh, that works, doesn't it? That's why most people gave up on religion or changed their religion, because they want a religion that's easier. It's not. And say, religion says just try harder, but Jesus says, no, no, forget about the codes for now. Forget about the rules and regulations for now. Just answer my call. This is a relational thing. It's not a philosophy. It's not a theology. It begins by answering a call to an invitation by a person. The second thing we see Jesus show us here in this example is that righteous living is the result of a relationship, not rule keeping. The religious authorities had a standard. That standard was a righteousness defined by how well you could keep the law and their 600 plus interpretations of it. In other words, what qualifies you to be righteous and accepted by God is whether or not you can live up to the standard of God's holy laws. But watch this. It's important. Jesus when he eats with tax collectors and sinners and despised lowlifes of society, criminals and cheaters and drug dealers and prostitutes and con artists, this is shocking, isn't it? It's like, no, no, no. I want to sanitize Jesus. I'll show you a picture in a second I found. It's actually kind of funny. But Jesus says, let me, let me redefine this. That the new qualification for acceptability before God is not 
your ability to keep all the rules perfectly. However, it is a, watch this, not rule keeping. That's not the standard. What qualifies you is recognition. Say recognition. Recognition of your need of God. Jesus in the, the book of Luke, or in Luke's gospel, tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. There's that despised lowlife again, and there's this religious, you know, morally acceptable guy, and they both come to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee comes, and he stands before the temple with his, his offering, and he says something like, God, I praise you, I worship you, I bless you, I thank you, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, and by the way, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector sitting right next to me. It's like saying, God, man, I just praise you, I love you, I bless you, I thank you so much that I'm, I'm so humble. And I'm so righteous, God. Thank you, God. And then the tax collector, he, he doesn't even have a gift. He just falls on his knees on the temple steps and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Rule-keeping, recognition. Jesus says, which one of those guys goes home justified before God? The guy who recognized he was a sinner. And so Jesus says, I've come for these folks. That's the new qualification. He's sitting at the table. I want to show you this. This is kind of cool. This is from, I don't know which Jesus movie this is from, but uh, that's what it might have looked like for Jesus to be sitting at the table with uh, those dudes. <laughs> I, I like how he's so, like, happy, <laughs> and he's not like, you know, Jesus, that, that first Jesus of Nazareth film where it just looked like he's a total ghost, and he's got those, like, really scary eyes, you know, like, whoa, man. But here's Jesus, right? And uh, he probably, I don't know, we don't know, he might have been reclining not at a table because back then they didn't really have tables. They just kind of sat on the floor and they kind of ate. So here he is. He's talking with a bunch of these dudes. And um, as he's talking, his disciples are around him. He's got all these questionable people around him, sketchy people around him, right? He's got drug dealers over here. He's got prostitutes over there. He's got tax collectors over there. He's got these criminals surrounding him, these corrupt people, corrupt politicians, maybe. Who knows, right? They're the, the criminally rich. And he, he's, he's sitting, and they're having a good time. He's telling them stories because that's what Jesus does best. He's telling them stories, and they're like, huh, that's awesome. Tell us another one, Jesus. Tell us another one. And so as he's starting to tell the next story, one of his disciples, James, he's, he's listening intently, and someone taps James on the shoulder, and he looks, and he sees that it's Pharisee Joe. And so Pharisee Joe says, James, come over here. I need to talk to you. And so they go to the side, and Pharisee Joe says, it is not fitting for a rabbi to be hanging around in these, these places. Why does your teacher eat and associate with these kinds of people. And James doesn't know the answer. He's like, um, I was just following. I, I don't know. Because I think like you, like, we should, I don't think we should be here, but I, I'm here. So he goes, I don't get it. So he goes back to the table and he goes, Jesus, I need to talk to you. I, I, somebody's asking me to ask you a question. And Jesus is like, James, 
don't worry about it, James. Like, just ask your question. Like, we'll all answer. Maybe we'll all benefit from your question. So James is like, okay, um, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's quiet. Jesus is like, well, let me tell you, James. I'm glad you asked. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then the, and then the tax collector on Jesus' left said, so what, Jesus, you calling us all sick? You calling us sick, huh? And Jesus looks back at him and says, Jim, tax collector Jim, you live a life that is terrible. Come on, just admit it. You're sick, dude. And Jim goes, you're right. I'm so, I'm so sick. I'm so bad. We're all sick. We're all messed up. And Jesus, exactly. That's why I'm here. Let me tell you another story. There's this one story. There was a father who had two sons. And one son asked for the inheritance early. You remember the story? I imagine that Jesus would have told those kinds of parables to people sitting in that room. Religion, <laughs> Jesus told those stories to the rejects. Because religion will tell you you're rejected until you can live righteously, but Jesus will say, well, what the rejected really need is a relationship with the righteous one. Folks, your righteousness is not earned. Your righteousness is given as a gift when you associate, when you attach yourself to the person of Jesus. Did you hear what I said? Oh, God, okay. Well, maybe this will get you going and we'll close. So Jesus, he looks at Matthew, and I can imagine that Jesus says to Matthew, Matthew, I'm about to call you to follow me because I see so much in your future. Matthew, I know right now you're, you're involved in a very dishonorable profession. People don't like you, I get that. But Matthew, I, I see something in you, man. And I'm, I'm about to call you to leave where you are because I want to move you from your past into your potential, into your future in God. And let me, let me tell you something, Matthew. Matthew, I see in you the potential to write an account about my life that John, Luke, and Mark would not be able to do in the same way. Like, you're going to have a perspective on my life and on my teaching because you're a follower of me. You're going to have this perspective, and you're going to write on this. And it's going to be a record of my life. It's going to be a narrative about my life and teachings. And it's going to change the world, Matthew. I see that in you, Matthew. Come, follow me. And Matthew, because there was probably something in him that said, man, thank you that you even offered me the alternative. I can't wait to get out of this kind of life. He answers the call. And he becomes the gospel writer that we know today. Christ and his call 
will move you from your past into God's purpose. Because religion tells us, preserve the past so we can control the future. But Jesus says, let me redeem the past so we can create the future together. I feel like the Lord told me to say today to many of you, follow me, Matthew. You're Matthew. I'm Matthew. And we need to hear the call of Christ afresh to us in, our, in the middle of our dishonor. Because truth be told, some of you have done some things that you're not too proud of in your life. And some of you have done some dishonorable things and have had dishonorable types of experiences and made unwise decisions that put you in, kind of stuck you in situations that you don't want to be in. And people might look at you and say, man, I can't believe you do that. I can't believe you're like that. I can't believe you did that. Jesus comes to us in the middle of that stuckness and he calls us to follow him afresh. There's a story that I heard years ago about this um, preacher, teacher, theologian named Tony Campolo. Some of you know Tony Campolo. He's kind of a, he's a um, professor, I think, on the East Coast, in the seminary in the East Coast. Anyway, he, uh, very well-known, used to be a very well-known speaker in the body, in the, uh, body of Christ. He was speaking at a conference in Hawaii, and um, after the, one of the evening sessions was over, it, it, he got, they got out late, and he had to walk back to his hotel room, but he was hungry. And so he, in downtown Honolulu, in order to get to his hotel room, he had to walk through the red light district. So he's walking through the red light district, but he's hungry, and so he sees this place open. It's a cafe, and the cafe, um, he goes in, he orders, a, um, you know, whatever meal, and as he's sitting there, uh, there a couple of ladies walk in, and they're, you know, the kind that, uh, that work at that time of night in the red, lit, red light district. They're prostitutes. And they're talking about another prostitute that um, they, they mention that it's her birthday that night. <laughs> and so the guy behind the counter, the manager, is uh, talking with these ladies because he knows them and whatnot. They come in every night at that time, 2 o'clock in the morning. And so he's... Uh, Tony Campolo overhears that it's this lady's birthday and that she's on her way in. She's coming in at a certain time. So Tony goes over to the manager and says, hey, do you have like some cake or some pie or something that we can, we can um, prepare for this lady to, to celebrate her birthday? And they're like, what? Okay, yeah, sure, let's do it. So they get a piece of pie out, you know, whatever, put a candle on it. And this lady walks in from her shift and they start to celebrate her birthday and they sing happy birthday to her. You know, her friends, you know, just like, you know, whatever, talk about her in a good way and all that. And she starts breaking down and she's crying. And Tony Campolo said to her, why are you crying? It's your birthday. And she says, well, nobody's ever celebrated my birthday before. And he said, oh, well, happy birthday. And she says, well, who are you? And like, why are you doing this? And he says, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I, I serve God. And she goes, wow, what kind of God is this? And he said, well... I serve a God who throws parties for prostitutes. <laughs> a lot of what Jesus does in the Gospels offends our religious sensibilities. And I wonder if, as a church, we've become a little 
jaded and hardened by religion to not see the need of the people on the other side. Okay, I'm not talking just about the obvious people in our community, but the people in your life that you know that no one would reach to because of whatever stigma they carry, because of whatever past they drag along with them, you see? And God has placed you in those positions, those family members that are sketchy, <laughs> right? Listen, we need to be a church that is that has eyes for the people who are really hungry to follow Jesus. And sometimes you won't ever know until you actually invite people to do so. If we're going to be followers of Christ, sometimes we have to follow him to the other side of town where, where all of the religious ed, um, upbringing we've had tells us this is not where you're supposed to be. I was telling the first service, I said, you know, this does not mean be irresponsible. Some of you might be thinking, oh, <clears throat> I just need to reach out to sinners. Man, my, my ex is a sinner. I better, you know, better Facebook that, better get in touch with them. No, 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 don't do that. They're married. They've moved on. You know, don't go back there. That's the wrong application to this teach. I got to call up my ex-boyfriend and all my old friends, you know, have, them, have a party with them. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You know why? Because the first response that you need to, to give Jesus is following him. That's the first. It's not go throw a party for your friends, your old, you know, friends that influenced you in a bad way. No, no, because Jesus did that. No, 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 no. Answer the call to follow Jesus. That's the first response. And then Jesus will lead you in a way where you, won't, where you can be an influence to those friends. Because right now, if you were to go back to them... They drag you down. You know it. Admit it, right? So delete their names out of your face, uh, out of your Facebook. Unfriend them. Do whatever you need to do. And answer the call to follow Jesus. Leave behind your tax collector's booth. Leave behind the dishonorable, disreputable past that you drag along with you. Because you know what, folks? The reality is. There is a tax collector and a sinner in every one of us, isn't it? I'm appealing to you today through the word of God to hear and listen to the call of Jesus to come and follow him again. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.